Well, good morning, and uh, glad that you're here. I'm going to set these things aside if I can. Thanks, John. Uh, that was correct. <laughs> and no one was injured <laughs> in that moment. <laughs> uh, it's good to, good, to, uh, it's good to be with you here this morning. Uh, I don't know that I've ever really done anything quite like this before, but that's all right. It's, I guess even if you're an old dog, you can still learn new things, right? And uh, I was telling my wife on the parking lot, you know, it's kind of like doing a, being invited to do a chapel somewhere or speak at a camp to a kind of a group of people. Maybe you know some, maybe you don't know many. Uh, but it's not that either, uh, because this is the body that God has brought together and uh, you're a church family that uh, I've had uh, connections with for, I think, all of my 35 years, 30 years plus here in Xenia. Uh, uh, Wayne Hart and I used to spend time on a soccer field together, and 3723841 was a number that I memorized long ago. <laughs> and uh, then uh, when uh, Pastor Conrad was here, uh, he and I tried to get together about once every month or six weeks and uh, talk about life and pray together. And I got to know his his mom uh, for a short time uh, before she passed at the, the nursing home. I was visiting people there, and I think there was one time that our paths crossed, and so I just added his mom to my list of of people to greet, and, and that was uh, sweet and precious. And then uh, David Warren was my Baptist uh, history prophet Cedarville, yay, years ago. Uh, class known as Baptist misery by many. But, uh, uh, and then when I heard that uh, he was uh, providing some help here, he and I started hanging out and doing uh, brunch together once in a while. And so uh, I'm thankful to have the privilege to, to be here this morning. And... Uh, I'm also thankful that uh, over this last uh, week or so, I've been able to sit back in a passage that I preached about six weeks ago, I guess. Uh, we're going through the, a study of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel uh, at Emmanuel this, this year. And uh, if you have your Bibles, let's just go there. And uh, 1 Samuel, just... Uh, Eight or ten books into the Old Testament. And we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapters 2 and 3. And uh, just for full disclosure... Uh, over the years, the uh, font in this Bible that I've had for a long time have, has gotten smaller. <laughs> and uh, so I actually have the text printed out in a font that I can read. So don't, don't, don't consider this heresy when I set this aside. <laughs> but that podium's a little too small there. I'll just set it here. And I'm just going to read from something I can read from. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you. Give us hear, ears this morning 
to hear your word, to listen to your voice, and give us the uh, willingness to respond. Uh, Father, uh, we invite your spirit to speak truth to us. And Father, uh, uh, this group of believers this is uh, like every other group of believers that's ever walked this earth. We're people on a journey. Uh, we've, uh, we struggle with sin. We struggle with selfishness. We struggle with pride. We struggle with lust. We struggle with bowing our knee to you as the King and King and the Lord of Lords. And yet, Father, we know and recognize that you are merciful. And that you are patient with us. And that you long for us to continue to grow and be transformed by your spirit more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And for most of us, for all of us, we're just a few steps along in that journey. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity, for your word. Uh, might these be your words. Uh, might our hearts be attentive. In Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, my wife, Janelle, and I, we've uh, had a full week, and uh, uh, it was good to uh, be praying this morning uh, for Brian Hansen, and appreciate so much his ministry and the ministry of Brian Solomon, uh, who also is part of Capital Ministries there in uh, Columbus at the uh, State House, and Brian Hansen, who ministers uh, and leads ministry actually all around our country and in places around the world. And uh, it was just a week ago, Jim Doris, we were over at the Mayor's Prayer Breakfast. Remember that? And uh, Brian was one of the, uh, or, uh, yeah, Brian was the speaker there that morning. And so that was good to hear from him. But this past Wednesday, my wife and I uh, took advantage of uh, another civics lesson. Over this past year, uh, you can hear more about our story a little later. I, I, I think we will stay for that business meeting. It sounds so exciting. And then I heard there's lunch perhaps after, but the business meeting we're here for. Uh, uh, we had a civics lesson over this past year. And this past Wednesday, my wife and I uh, were able to testify at the uh, Higher Education House Subcommittee. Uh, and it was quite a quite an interesting time, about two hours of, of testimony from about 30 people and uh, gave their stories and answered questions in front of the representatives and uh, there's a house bill that's, that's uh, being proposed that would uh, make in schools, K-12 and in higher education schools, uh, it seems kind of absurd to even say this, but that would make uh, men's restrooms and locker rooms a place for men and women's locker rooms and restrooms a place for women and that's something that my wife and I have have been uh, acutely aware of over this last year and so we were able to, to testify there and spent about uh, four hours up there that morning in the uh, state house and then uh, Friday uh, something that's that's uh, been dear to my heart for years and years and years 
and my former students, those of you know me, may know this, but uh, there's been a ministry at the Juvenile Detention Center here in Xenia on Friday nights for like 35 years. And there was a young man I met when he was 12 years old there. His name is Justin Noble. And uh, got to know him quite well. Uh, and uh, when he was 19, he picked up, oh, I think, 12, 15 felonies in three different counties and was sentenced to 12 years uh, in prison. And he moved his way all the way up through all the levels of prison from, from Lebanon to Chillicothe to Ross, eventually to Toledo, which is a maximum security because he just kept fighting and he kept uh, beating up corrections officers and his monkeys and he was an angry man. And uh, when he left Toledo about four years ago to come back to uh, Warren, Warren Correctional, uh, he got connected with a ministry called Kairos and a ministry called, called Crossroads. And he would go to those events in the prison and take the Bible with him that uh, he had since his detention center days. And uh, a couple years ago, he was baptized. He's 29 years old, and I visited him this last Friday morning at a place I'd never been, but it's called the uh, Franklin uh, Medical Center. And it's a prison just south of Columbus with a hospital in it because Justin's dying. He's 29 years old. He's got stage four liver and colon cancer, and he just lost so much weight that I got to spend part of my Friday morning uh, with him and hopefully this next week I'll go again and uh, try to do it differently. They have an opportunity. This is another new experience, uh, a bedside visit in a prison. I, I've never done that before, but uh, for those that, that are very weak, uh, we can actually, I guess, go and do a visit next to his bed uh, in his cell. I don't even know how that works. but uh, So that was a really heavy morning. But it was also good because Justin reaffirmed to me that he's in God's hands. And uh, he reaffirmed to me that he's ready to meet Jesus, whenever that might be. And so we prayed together, and whatever days God gives him, and I told him to go be a blessing to his bunkies. And I said, I'll pray with you here in the visitation room this time, but when you go upstairs, uh, pray with the guys that you're with. That'd be awesome, Justin. So, uh, so that's been part of my week. You ready to go? First Samuel 2. Uh, so unfortunately, we're kind of, I'm, I'm bringing a message that falls into a series that we've been going through, but some of you may be familiar with the story uh, that kicks off in First Samuel of Hannah and Elkanah, and Hannah is longing uh, for a boy, for a son, for a child, and she is just heartbroken over this, over her barrenness, and she uh, humbles herself and prays before God and promises God, makes a vow before God that if God gives her a son, that he will give this son back to the work of the Lord. And that son was born. His name is Samuel. And we'll drop in the story uh, here in chapter 2 and actually verse 11. So the first 10 verses of chapter 2 is a praise song that Hannah sings, which is... Uh, Kind of, it sets the uh, tone, it sets the, it's the basis, the foundation really for the books of First and Second Samuel because so much of what uh, Hannah states in this praise psalm 
is fulfilled in the, in the book of First and Second Samuel. And so in verse 11, we read that Elkanah went home to Ramah. That was where Eli, I'm sorry, that was where Samuel was born. That's where uh, Elkanah and Hannah lived. But the boy, Samuel, ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Now, typically, we like to, and we, have, we probably, are, our kids have all been introduced to Samuel. Because it's nice for us to identify with the good characters. That's okay to do. But this morning, I'd rather us give our attention to this guy named Eli. And to his sons. And we're going to start there. But through these this two chapters, we'll, we're going to just hear and see over again that Eli and the system of priests was just absolutely broken and corrupt. It was evil. It was wicked. But throughout these two chapters, God is still telling us he's still in charge. He's still, there's still hope. He's not given up because intermixed in this dialogue that describes Eli and his sons is a whole lot like we just read. So if you have your scriptures, let's look. In verse 11, it says, But the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. If you go down to verse 18, But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod, or the clothing of a priest. Verse 21 of chapter 3, Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And in verse 26 of chapter 3, the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. So we, we get little glimpses that God's still in charge, that God still has his plan unfolding here. But what about Eli? What about Eli and his sons? Verse 12. We don't have to get far in the text. <laughs> the author here, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Uh, the book of Samuel is set in the time of the judges. Uh, Eli was a judge. Samuel was the last judge, the last leader of Israel prior to them beginning the monarchy. Uh, and during the time of the judges, the people of Israel just did not, were not faithful to God. Over and over and over again, the enemies would come, right? And these cycles of sin and rebellion against God. And then they would briefly turn to God and God would send a deliverer. And often the deliverer himself was not a very godly person. And Eli certainly follows that same trait, but... Not only was the government system broken, but the temple, the tabernacle, it had kind of been sitting at Shiloh for a while, so perhaps that it was a little less uh, able to be moved than, than before. But the house of God was the only place where the people could go and where God instructed them to go to offer their sacrifices. And it was broken. And the priest there and his sons had no regard for the Lord. So even if you were a godly person in that time and you were following God's commands, your, your treks to Shiloh, 
your treks to the tabernacle, to the place where you would worship God, you would get there and it was a godly place. It was a godless place. Like, where could anyone even turn to if the priest and his servants were wicked? Right? There was no place to go. There was no place for spiritual guidance. So the government was corrupt. And the temple practice was corrupt. Verse 13, that was the practice of priests, that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whenever, whatever that fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Verse 16, if the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. Just total contempt for what God had planned and designed. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 3, it says, these are the parts the priest may claim as their share from the cattle, the sheep, the goats, and the people that bring his offerings. This is what's provided for the priest, the shoulder of the sacrifice, the, the, the cheeks or the meat from the head, and the stomach. Okay, in Leviticus 22, it says this, Tell Aaron and his sons to treat with respect the sacred offerings. The Israelites concentrate to me so that they will not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. The priests are to perform my service in such a way that they do not become guilty and die for treating it with contempt. I am the Lord who makes them holy. That's from Leviticus. So what had happened in this sacrificial system? The people would bring their sacrifices to be offered. And the priests and the priest's servants, which describes it as taking a fork and putting it into the meat, the sacrifice that was boiling, and pulling out whatever chunk of meat they wanted, and they would have it for themselves. Or even, even more wicked, more vile, the sacrifices were supposed to be roasted, and the smoke, the aroma from the sacrifice, represented the people's prayers to God. A sweet-smelling savor going up to the heavens, right? Maybe you've read that or seen that in the Scriptures. Well, before that would even happen, these evil priests, the servants in the temple, would insist, we want the meat before it's even roasted. We want the fat part for ourselves. Not just taking from the people, but taking from God. Right? taking that which belonged to God for themselves. And then we even know that, well, it's pretty likely that Eli was participating in this because perhaps you remember that at his death, he's described as a very fat man. Because he got fat off the backs of the people he was supposed to be serving. Like, do you get that? Like, He's the one who's supposed to be blessing the people and instead he's taking from them and his sons. And that's the practice in the temple of stealing from the people, stealing from the Lord. 
Verse 17, The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. <laughs> Thanks for verse 18. Come on! We need a little light. We need a little hope. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod, the garment of a priest. Verse 19, Each year his mother made him a little robe, and took it to him where she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And then a reminder, Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. little, uh, just, I think it's appropriate to, to think through what Hannah's heart must have been like in her mind as a mom, who would only see her firstborn son when she would travel from Ramah up to Shiloh. But during the year, it says that she made a robe. And he was probably three, maybe four years old when he was first taken to the tabernacle. So, of course, he's a growing boy. And every year she'd make her pattern a little bigger, right? The sleeves a little longer. And you know what? She missed the first things in Samuel's life. Like the first time he did this. The first time he did that. And those are the things that parents and grandparents want to take pictures of and videos of. Right? She would have missed those things. And I, I think that perhaps as she was putting these ropes together, maybe some of her tears, and I know her prayers for her son were part of that project. However, we know the end of the story of Samuel, that he was faithful to God. And you know what? As a parent, as a grandparent, what's the greatest joy? Our greatest joy is to know that our children are walking in the truth. And every year she got to see that. And she, it just would have filled her heart. My boy, the one I gave to God, is faithful even in the midst of this corrupt worship system, he's being faithful. He's following God. There's no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. And what's the greatest sorrow on the flip side? It's when our kids reject God. Verse 21, or 22. Now Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel. How they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. 
Can it get uglier? It is uglier. At the place, the house of God. Eli's sons, those next in line, those priests, they're committing immorality with the people that were either the servants there at the temple that worked there or the people that were bringing sacrifices, the women who were bringing. But either way, again, taking advantage and corrupting. What, what a mess. And Eli, the high priest, the priest there was in charge. And we don't have any insight into how Eli parented his kids. And you could use this and then lots of other scripture to give, give uh, uh, support for what it means to teach your kids to know the Lord. But Eli is an old man and his sons as adults. And Eli in charge, he should have taken action. He should have cleaned house. He should have. Like, he's such an interesting character because he knows it's wrong. We're going to read here in a few moments. He even raised Samuel, it seems, to know the Lord. He knows their behavior is wrong, but Eli doesn't do anything about it. Except, well, boys, that's maybe not a good thing to do. You're in charge, Eli. If you really honor God and really respect Him, then obey Him. Then don't let this happen under your watch. Don't avoid it anymore. In the midst of this darkness, verse 26, the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Thank you, God. There's somebody faithful coming. I don't know how Samuel survived in that setting. Prayers of his mom. Heart for God. Verse 27, now a man of God, unnamed, because it doesn't matter what his name is, his message is what counts here, came to Eli. Why to Eli? Because Eli's in charge. I think that's another scriptural principle. There's something about those in authority are held to a greater account. Teachers, dads, a greater account, right? The man of God came to Eli and said, this is what the Lord said. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestor's family? Be talking about Aaron, when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh, I chose your ancestors out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. I've done this. I've given you the instructions. You, you're a special people, the Levites, the tribe of Levi. Your provisions are going to come. I'm going to provide for you. I'm not going to give you a chunk of land because your work is to be focused on the Lord. And as people bring their sacrifices, there's provisions for you. Verse 29, so why, Eli, do you scorn my sacrifice and offerings that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me? By fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. He's saying, why is God not your first love? 
Why are you not loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? Verse 30, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised the members of your family would minister before me forever, but now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. Those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained, counted unworthy, despicable. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach an old age and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength and your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, verse 34, Hophni and Phinehas, will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. And then skip to 36. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so that I can have food to eat. Here's God's judgment given through his man, the man of God. You've been unfaithful. You've treated my... My offerings, you've treated me, God would say, with contempt, with disrespect. The priesthood's going to move away from your family line. Your descendants are not going to live long. And, and just so you know this is all true, Eli, in your own lifetime, you're going to see your younger sons die before you. It's not the way it's supposed to be, but that's the way it's going to happen as a sign so that you know that everything else I say is true. And what's interesting at the very end of this, they're going to go from being fat to being beggars. You see that? They're not going to beg that they could be back working in the tabernacle, having something to eat. And what's interesting in, in uh, Hannah's Praise earlier in chapter 2, in verse 3, 2 3. If you just want to flip back to that one page in your Bible, perhaps here's what Hannah said in her praise song Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. Those who were full, Eli and his sons, will hire themselves out for food. Right? We're down to verse 10 of chapter 2. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. And just a few verses later, a few verses later, those who are opposing the Lord are going to be broken. Judgment's coming. Right? That, that those words of praise are, are, are coming true. Skip verse 35. Let me just read this. God says through the prophet, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Not like Eli, a faithful priest. Who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. 
I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. A new priestly line is going to be established. Uh, I'm going to leave you here with a, a question. Who is that faithful priest? For the readers of the book of 1 Samuel, it seems like it could be Samuel. He's serving in the temple. He's making sacrifices. He's wearing the priestly garment. But then we realize, we read a little later in the book, that his boys weren't faithful to God. And, ah, I guess it's not Samuel. And so the mystery is who's going to be this faithful priest? And maybe some of you know ultimately who that is. But we're left there with that promise that there's a faithful priest coming. Chapter 3, just wander through this here. The boy Samuel, oh, we need hope. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. Good job, Samuel. Hang it there. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions, but by the end of this chapter, there's going to be visions. There's going to be word from God. And why was God kind of silent? Because there was nobody willing to listen to him during the time of the judges. His voice was rare. Verse 2, one night Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. Verse 6, again the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Verse 7, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. He's, he'd not had an opportunity to hear God's voice before. The word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. A third time the Lord said, Samuel. Samuel got up, went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. Like, how does Eli have this little bit of spirituality of knowing and even directing Samuel to turn and listen to God. He's just it's a sad character because he knows and he knows better. And for whatever reason, he's directing Samuel to the Lord, but he wouldn't be the leader that God needed him to be in that temple. Go lie down. And if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That was the title I gave to this message, if titles mean much, but it was a title because I think it should be the title or it could be the title of any message. <laughs> Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down at his place. The Lord came and stood calling another time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. Like both ears. Like, like it's going to be shocking. Okay? This is really interesting. This is Samuel's first message that he's hearing from God. Uh, not much of a learning curve here. This is like straight heavy. 
Here we go. I'm going to do something that's going to be shocking to everyone. At that time, I will carry out against Eli. Your friend Eli. The man who's been like a father figure to you in a way. I'm going to carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God. And he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore, swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Just want to make a comment there. Uh, I always thought that there was a, like a way to be forgiven. A way to have your sins atoned for. Well, there is. And it's free to all people. But not the way they were doing it. There was nothing in the way of their sacrificial system that would bring God's mercy and covering over their sins. Their sacrificial system was completely broken and contemptible before God. So in that system, there was no place. They could not continue on with that behavior and ever expect God to forgive them of their sins. That's what the authors are saying here. Samuel lay down until morning. I don't think he slept. I'm not sure. Uh, he's trembling. Was it a dream? No. <laughs> it was real, right? And he, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and he started doing his chores. And he was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called and said, Samuel, my son. And Samuel answered, Here I am. What was it he God said to you, Again, Eli is such a puzzling guy. I want to know what God said. But it wasn't God talking to Eli. It was God talking to Eli through Samuel. And then Samuel and Eli said, Don't hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel. He grew up. He let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. His, his prophecies, God's word was true. It happened. And all Israel from Dan and the far north to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. And there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And chapter 4, verse the very first part of it. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. And the chapter starts out with the word is rare. But now there's someone willing to listen to God, and it's Samuel. And the word becomes more, more common. So as we wrap this up and think about what this is about, how we can apply this, why don't you look at verse 18 with me. Who is this Eli guy? Who in verse 18 says, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. What, what, is, what is that? It's sound theology. 
He's God. He does good. He is good. He will do what's good. It's perfectly sound theology. But you know what Eli never did? He never turned to God and pled for mercy. He never had a broken and contrite heart. He never was crushed in his spirit because following this phrase, it should say, and he fell down in ashes and sackcloth and he sought God for mercy. And what's so interesting about Eli is he's God's man in that position, but he never really understood the words that we read from Psalm 145, that God is rich in mercy. He's slow to anger. He's rich in mercy. He's slow to anger. In Jeremiah 18, in the uh, passage, it talks about the potter and the clay. The words that God says to Jer through Jeremiah, Can I not do with you, Israel, as the potter does, declared the Lord? Jeremiah 18, Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. And listen to these words. This is God. This is God's heart. If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, tore down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. What's the proper response to a warning? Repentance. Seeking God's mercy. Having a broken heart. And God even says here that if a nation turns... You know what that reminds me of? Jonah going to Nineveh. Preached the shortest sermon. I don't know how long mine is. I got to get going here. But listen. His sermon was to all the city of Nineveh. In 40 days, God's going to destroy the city. That's his sermon. In 40 days, God's going to destroy this city. Do you know what happened to Nineveh? The king. And the people fell down and sought God's mercy. And in that generation, the city of Nineveh was saved. What would have happened if Eli had done that? What would have happened if Eli would have just, out of brokenness and a crushed spirit, oh God, have mercy on me. But instead, it's like he's just He's resigned to the fact that it's over. He's the Lord. Let him do what's good in his eyes. There's nothing I can do about it. Oh, that's so sad. Psalm 51, 17. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken and contrite heart. You will not despise. The Lord is gracious and he's full of compassion. He's slow to anger and great in mercy. Uh, one commentator describes Eli's response as this. It's one of fatalism, of resignation. Even now, when the death of his sons is around the corner, Eli does absolutely nothing. His response has an empty religious ring. 
It's a simply pious version of what will be, will be. Eli just kind of shrugs his shoulders. It's God's will, I guess there's nothing I can do. How sad that Eli did not know that God who's rich in mercy. What are the sacrifices of God? Broken spirit and a contrite heart. God, you will not despise. King David, a little later in the book of Samuel, was confronted by Nathan the prophet about his sin with Bathsheba. And his response was so different than Eli's. He might have said, he's the Lord. Let him do what's good. But then we read that he fell down. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted. He spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. He refused to eat any of the food that was offered him. Because he was broken. In 1 Kings 21, I don't know who wins the prize for the most wicked king in the time of the kings, but Ahab certainly in the top ten. Did you know that the prophet Elijah brought a warning to the wicked, evil king Ahab? Because you sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, God says, I'm going to bring disaster in you. I'll wipe out your descendants and cut them off. Not much different than the word of warning to Eli. And First uh, Kings 21, I believe, verse 27, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes. This is the evil king. He put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on a house in the days of his sons, of his descendants. Because a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. Those of you in authority, as a parent, as a dad, uh, God holds you responsible to a higher place of accountability. And when you see sin, you have to deal with it. You have to address it. You can't look the other way. There was that verse early on where Eli was accused of honoring his sons more than honoring God. That's prevalent. That's prevalent. Because Jesus spoke of this when he said that if you're going to follow me, you have to love me more than what? Your mom, your brothers, or your sisters. Last uh, December the 15th, I got a, a letter from someone who uh, was a staff member in another church here in Xenia, and she uh, heard about uh, my wife's uh, encounter with a man in the locker room. 
And she wrote a long letter. She says, I'm a mom. I've never been pregnant. I've never stayed up all night with a sick kid. All my kids have come to me as teenagers through adoption. None of my kids are Christians. Two of my kids are transgender. Name changes, wardrobe changes, tears, questions, surgeries. We've done almost all of it. My kids aren't ready to hear that Jesus loves them. They aren't ready to hear that God wants a personal relationship with them. But all four of my kids know that I love them deep and wide and hard. Then she writes this. If we fight about everything, we can't have any relationship with anyone. We have to go to them where they are. We know this about the homeless, the sick, and the dying. Why can't we do that with the LGBTQ community? And that's the, the difficulty. Because there are people that have people, individuals in their family and really close friends who are the hardest to confront with truth about sin because they don't want to lose that relationship. But when they don't confront the sin, they're putting their relationship with God secondary. And she equates wrongly our care for those who are poor and the elderly who we're to care for with those who are wrapped up in sinfulness. And we have talked with lots and lots of moms and dads who are heartbroken over the decisions their kids are making. And how do we continue to love them without <laughs> accepting their sins? How do we do that? It's hard, it's difficult, but the words of Jesus said, your first love is for me. Your greatest affection must be for me and my truth. Oh, Eli, why didn't you do with your boys and the brokenness in the temple? Why, when the warning came twice, first from the man of God and the second from Samuel, did you not fall down and repent? Come on, Eli, why not? Why didn't you know that God was what? Rich in mercy and slow to anger. Psalm 94, 16 says, Who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who will take a stand with me against the evildoers? And in Psalm 95, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And we're the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I don't know how often, maybe it's once a month like we do at Emmanuel with communion. But what's the warning given in the communion passage in First? Corinthians 11. 
Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That was the sin of Eli and his boys. Everyone ought to examine himself. Right? Or in Hebrews 10, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. There's nothing we can do if we reject God in His way of doing it. What's His way? To turn to Him with humility. It's how we've become a believer in God. The core of the gospel is saying, I can't do it. I need you, God, to rescue me. Hebrews 10, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? It's one thing to show contempt to the sacrifice of the Old Testament. Now, what about the contempt? With Jesus Christ. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh God, have mercy on us. James, wherever you are, come on up. God, thank you. In all of our hearts, God, there lurks shadows and tendencies of Eli. And most in this room are good with the spiritual language. We're good with, with understanding the doctrines. But Father, I pray for this body of believers here that if there's anyone in this room, whoever that might be, who's holding on to sin in their hearts, who's not letting you be their first love, who's not honoring you first. God, would you find their hearts to be humble and contrite and crushed before you? Might they turn to you, God, like we do when we turn to you for salvation. Might that be the posture of our lives. We're not perfect. And when we sin, God, you still give us the remedy. Don't let us have hard hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.